the thing and the man thing. Welcome to FW Team Up, a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I'm Siskoid. And I'm Ryan Daly. Taking you through a classic superhero team up, The Thing and The Man Thing, from Marvel 2 and 1 number 1, cover dated January of 1973. And Ryan, when you agreed to partake in the new FW Team Up, your only request was that you'd be assigned a Marvel series. What's that about? Um, that's about my contributions to the Fire and Water Network, notwithstanding for the vast majority of my comic book collecting and fandom, I have been more of a Marvel fan than a DC fan. I did dabble in DC at a very particular time in my life, which actually led me into podcasting and the, the whole Fire and Water community. So it's kind of lucky that it worked out that way. But also, like given the four options that you presented with these different team-up books, I was really familiar with large chunks of The Brave and the Bold, and I was really familiar with DC Comics Presents. I had either read a lot of those issues or I'd heard podcasts covering a lot of those issues. Despite being a big Marvel fan, both of the team-up books, 2-in-1 and Team-Up, are kind of Bronze Age blind spots for me. I hadn't read a lot of those issues, and I just kind of... I wanted to cover something that I haven't read before, that I haven't talked about a lot. And this just kind of gave me the chance. And especially when you offered me Marvel 2 and 1, I was like, yeah, that's that's the one I know the least about. But it was kind of one that was more appealing because the Fantastic Four is my favorite you know, property or family or group of characters within the Marvel universe. The thing obviously is a core part of that. One of the most beloved characters in all of Marvel comics. I think I, I may have mentioned this before, maybe we we've never talked about it, but I, I do kind of have this thing that's, Spider-Man and The Thing, both of these characters being like the two characters to lead these team-up books, there's something about them, the sort of ethos of these characters, I I feel like they're the heart and soul of the Marvel Universe. And in a way, they're sort of representative of their creators. You know, Spider-Man, he's much more in his own head. He's much more cerebral. He's much more like intellectual and, and thinking the process through, but he, he talks a lot. He thinks a lot. It's, it's just, he's just too much in his own head. And for me, he kind of represents the writer aspect of the creative process and, and Stan Lee, the the question like, where does Steve Ditko fit into this? I don't know. (laughs) I haven't haven't finished the analogy, but Spider-Man is the Stan Lee part of Marvel comics. And that's why Spider-Man was always one of Lee's favorite characters. And I think there's a bit of him in that. And Ben Grimm, the thing is the Jack Kirby part of the Marvel universe. He's the physical, he's the brute, he's the cigar chomping, just, you know, he, he's smart and he's really talented and very creative, but he leads with his fists and everything is on the surface. It's physical, it's expressive, it's dynamic. And that's what you get with Kirby and his art, everything with Ben Grimm with the thing, the fact that his catchphrase is it's clobbering time, you know, clobbering is using your fists, using your mitts and everything like that. And with, with the artist having to like hunch over and kind of become this rock like form as you're drawing, as your sketch pad, you're making the world with your hands. I've always kind of felt like that Peter Parker and Ben Grimm kind of represent those creative dynamics 
if this was like a regular, if I was just guesting on the show and like, that, what do I like about the thing? That's kind of the thing I like about him is I, I feel like he is the most Jack Kirby of all of Kirby's creations. Yeah, excited to see like how that type of character gets into team ups on a monthly basis versus somebody like Spider-Man or Batman or Superman. Yeah, it, it was an, always a weird one for me. And I like you, Marvel 2-in-1 was a big blind spot because it sort of ended around the time where I really started picking up a lot of comics. So I remember picking up The Thing, you know, comic itself, mm-hmm. uh, once you, it was free of the, the guest stars. So I, I missed most, if not all, of this particular series, and I only caught up with it in uh, Marvel Essentials in black and white, uh, much later, and, and really enjoyed it. Over at DC, there, Superman has a team-up book, Batman has a team-up book that just seems no-brainer, like your biggest stars teaming up with people. The Thing was not one of the biggest stars if you compare him to, to Spider-Man. You would have needed another solo hero normally, you know, but this this was a team player now being in, in these stories without the FF, but with a, a different guest star. So I'd love to know how this came up as an idea for a book. And since you, you're you the, the guy who did a lot of the horror stuff on the Fire and Water podcast network, having you do a, a monster as, you know, if we call Ben Grimm a monster, but a monster who teams up with others just made sense to me. Yeah. And this is going to be like, people always wonder, okay, what's the order of these things, because we've shown that we are not necessarily starting with the beginning, nor are we necessarily going, you know, it's an index show, but not necessarily a, like a consecutive issues. So in this case, we do start with number one, but... But number one wasn't really the first. No, that's... But yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's true. So there's there's a couple of issues of, uh, what was it called? Marvel... Marvel Feature. Yeah. Marvel Feature. I mean, all these names are so generic. <laughs> Marvel Features, two last issues were the thing with the Hulk and then Iron Man. And, uh, and that spun out. They canceled Marvel Feature and started Marvel 2-in-1 to continue those those team-ups. Okay, fine. Uh, but uh, we're not, even though we're starting with a number one, does not mean we're going to be doing number two, number three, number four in your next segments. Rather, we're spawning various orders, is what we came up with, and switching them out every calendar year. So if today we're talking about Man-Thing, it's because for what's left of 2022, we're using what we're calling the Monster Order. Yeah, that was one of the things that was kind of important was I didn't want to do just a sequential index show and and have the burden of just going like issues one, two, three, and all those orders. I liked the idea of flipping around and jumping and which characters appealed to me or which things like that. And and But I also wanted the, the chances to kind of surprise myself. So I was like, what if we picked a theme for every calendar year? So this one... Yeah, we're only going to have two episodes total of this show for uh, for 2022, but our little mini theme, as you said, is the horror monster realm. And then next year, maybe it'll be cosmic. Maybe it'll be, uh, I, I don't know, like all superheroines. Uh, I, I was kind of thinking about other genre. I don't know if we got like full Western or romance in two and one, but no, but Kung Fu was certainly a theme at some point action scientists or, you know, whatever the, the theme will be, we'll be going like, what's the next one. So after man thing, what is the next monster? So we're doing them in order, but skipping around thematically. And we may return to the monster order eventually, you know, it's, it all depends on our, our mood 
for that year. Right. So to begin, we preface with reasons why we like the guest character. In this case, Man-Thing. What's so great about Man-Thing? What's so great about him is the name. I mean, let's, let's not be coy. I mean, it's, it's <laughs> we pretend we are so sophisticated and we are so erudite. There's part of us that never stopped being little kids. And he's, his name is Man-Thing. It's, you giggle at it. It's hard to take that seriously. They knew exactly what they were doing when they made books called Giant Size Man-Thing. Uh, like, <laughs> the, 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 like, yeah, these are grown men laughing their butts off i like the the concept of like the the creepy muck monster lurking in the swamp i love swamp thing i love main thing too just something about his look like the the sort of like amorphous kind of misshapen thing that's like kind of shaggy haired looking but the the hair is really more just kind of like swampy seaweed you kind of get the sense of that like you don't really know what he's made of he's got these very alien looking not tendrils, but like proboscis like thing coming out of his like this trunk, almost like an elephant thing. But also just like that, those very vibrant red eyes that kind of set off the greenish, brownish, black, like the, the muck things. Just those those piercing red eyes that you just see in the darkness that just come out. It's just it's a great little design because it's very easy for a heap-like swampy monster creature to have no really discerning shape or feature, but credit to the artists who created, you know, Man-Thing and Swamp-Thing, they found some little trick about the facial design to to make them distinctive so that you can recognize them anywhere. Uh, I mean, the the name doesn't register as rude for a French-speaking person. Like, (laughs) it it took me forever. Like, when people started laughing about Giant Size Man-Thing, I was like, oh, oh, I guess. I guess that must be an expression. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and when when we covered this character on Ohad Moor Not with the girls, they also did not register the the rudeness of the name. Mm. Though once they were told, they registered the the rudeness of the nose. So <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that went with it. Yeah, both Man Thing and Swamp Thing were based on the heap you mentioned. It especially Man Thing, he's got the same face, the same root trunk. But what the heap didn't have is that good name. I mean, the heap sounds like it was made of garbage or, mm-hmm. <laughs> or something. The name and the tagline. I guess I always misquote it as whoever knows fear burns at the touch of the man thing. I, I think it works better than the man thing's touch or whatever, in my mouth anyways. But yeah. it's a it's a great tagline that tells you a lot about the, the character who is more monstrous than Swamp Thing. Swamp Thing is more of a person, whereas man thing is not. So that really created, even though they were created at the same time from the same thought, right. <laughs> they became very different kinds of characters telling very different kinds of stories. By roommates, apparently, living in the same in the same apartment, sharing the same apartment, basically getting the edict to create the same type of character. And, like, their origins have some overlap, which is a little bit interesting. Uh, well, let's talk about Man-Thing's publication history. Going through the, the first couple decades of his history, uh, the Man-Thing was created by editor Roy Thomas, writer Jerry Conway, and artist Gray Morrow at the urging of Stan Lee, who wanted a new muck monster type of character in the style of, as we said, the glob or the heap, something like that. And the only condition that Stanley had was that it had to be called the man thing. And allegedly Roy Thomas did not like this name because they already had the thing, which is interesting because we'll be talking about these two characters in this issue. But they, they did it because that was Stan's edict. And the so-named creature debuted in the black and white pages of Savage Tales issue one in 1971. He would not appear again until one year later in the pages of the Kazar feature of Astonishing Tales, issues 12 and 13. And that one-year gap is kind of interesting because 
the Swamp Thing over at DC basically got two origin stories. And the second one is a lot more like the Man Thing's origin story. And mm -hmm. there might be some thought that Len Wein and Bernie Wrightson didn't think that Marvel was ever going to use Man Thing again. So I'm like, well, we'll just steal his origin since that character is done with. Anyway, in October of 1972, Man Thing took over the lead feature of Fear, actually you're sometimes called Adventures into Fear, with issue 10, and remained in that book until issue 19. At that point, Man-Thing graduated to his own self-titled comic starting in January of 1974. Man-Thing, the comic, ran for 22 issues and five extra-length specials, infamously branded Giant Size Man-Thing. Almost all of his exploits during this era were scribed by Steve Gerber. During the same period, Period, and into the later 1970s, Man-Thing also guest-starred in issues of The Avengers, Daredevil, Master of Kung Fu, Doctor Strange, Marvel Team-Up, and Howard the Duck, a character who originally debuted in a Man-Thing story before setting off on his own publishing life. A second Man-Thing series started in 1979, first written by Michael Fleischer and then by Chris Claremont. It only ran 11 issues. And then he had fewer appearances in the 1980s, just some guest shots in Thor and the Defenders, and twice more in Marvel Team-Up. But he closed out that decade with a 12-part feature in the weekly Marvel Comics Presents anthology. Which is where I came in. I think that serial was my first real experience with a Man-Thing story. Mm. Uh, yeah, I, I remember like, the Tom Sutton art was... I felt perfect for creating the proper mm -hmm. creep factor. Uh, and then it ran like 12 issues. So, uh, you know, it, it was a big part of that original Marvel Comics Presents. And I guess it was still around. This is my research here because I left Marvel around this time. But it was still around in the mid-90s because they had another Man-Thing serial appear in issues 164 through 166 in late 94. J.M. Demetrius would take up the character in the late 90s when Volume 3 was launched. It lasted eight issues, and Demetrius then wrote a feature in Strange Tales that was never entirely published. Uh, it was eventually recapped in 1999's Spider-Man Annual. Not great days for Man-Thing. It's much the same in the 2000s. Despite a Man-Thing movie coming out in 2005, <laughs> it was really off-model, so I, <laughs> I, you know, and directed DVD, and I can see, I mean, I, I enjoyed it for what it was, it was not Man-Thing, really. So despite that movie, a story here and there, a four-issue run in Dead of Night featuring the Man-Thing, which retells his origin under the Max imprint. Then he joins the Thunderbolts with issue 144 and becomes a vegetable transporter for the team. <laughs> uh, he stays with them even beyond their rebranding as the Dark Avengers, so up to issue 183. So he's appropriately included in the Fear Itself event, joining Howard the Duck in... The Fearsome Four. So his cred has, has grown at this point, probably thanks to the success of Thunderbolts. And Steve Gerber's script for a graphic novel is posthumously published as a three-issue miniseries with art by Kevin Nolan in 2012. Uh, this, this one's called The Infernal Man-Thing. And author R.L. Stein makes his comics debut on a five-issue miniseries in 2017. Last year, we got a three-issue event called Curse of the Man-Thing. And this year, he's appeared in FF, Hulk, Grand Design. So I, I think there's kind of a love for the character at Marvel now that he's going to show up, maybe based on the nostalgia of various writers. Yeah. This issue is 1973, so well, let's go way, way back. Uh, it's called Vengeance of the Molecule Man. It's written by Steve Gerber, with art by Gil Kane and Joe Sinnott.
Time Magazine has just announced its thing of the year, and it's the man thing. Ben Grimm, stuck in New Mexico, takes the news very badly and changes his bus ticket from New York to Florida so he can have a good talking to with the monster that's stealing his branding. Meanwhile, in another dimension, where time moves at a faster rate, the Molecule Man, exiled there by the Watcher, lays dying of old age. He charges his son with destroying the Fantastic Four. After the old man dies... Junior reproduces the accident that gave Molecule Man his powers, but with an important difference. This time, he'll be able to transform living matter. Using his father's wand as a focus, the new Molecule Man crosses the dimensional boundaries and heads for New York, except that he lands in the Everglades instead, drawn to the nexus of all realities, protected by the Man-Thing. Startled by the Swamp Monster, he drops his wand, and suddenly he he starts to wither and age, discovering the hard way that time differential will catch up to him if he doesn't keep contact with the wand. He starts walking towards civilization, the curious man-thing following close behind. A short distance away, Ben Grimm gets off the bus and jumps into the muddy swamp. The son of Molecule Man attacks Ben, using his wand to bind Ben with tendril-like vines and protecting himself with a force field created by altered air molecules. But the Man-Thing senses the evil in Junior and defends the Thing. Son of the Molecule Man then retaliates by using his wand to strip the heroes of their powers and their monstrous forms. The Thing is once more Ben Grimm and Man-Thing, now a very confused Ted Salas. The bizarre energy fields of the Nexus, however, continue to plague Junior's wand, so he flees from the swamp on foot to the nearby town of Citrusville. Ted Salas is thrilled to be human once more, but Ben convinces him they must sacrifice their outward humanity once again. It will take the powers of the Thing and the Man-Thing to stop their foe. They arrive in Citrusville to find Junior wreaking havoc, using the wand's power to destabilize the very street beneath their feet. As a preview of his plans, he transmutes a random pedestrian into the likeness of Mr. Fantastic and then tortures the man to death. A howling mad Ben Grimm charges Junior, who transmutes him back into his rocky form of the Thing. Salas tries to restrain the Thing, but an enraged Ben knocks him away. Junior turns Salas back into the macabre Man-Thing, whose limited mind remembers only that the Thing hurt him, and responds in kind. Son of Molecule Man laughs as the monsters fight each other until the Thing takes a handful of muck that came from inside the Man-Thing and hurls it at Junior. It knocks the wand out of his hand. The powerful instrument tumbles and bounces around the wrecked city street as Junior scrambles desperately to retrieve it. With each second the wand is out of his grasp, though, he ages rapidly, slowing down his speed and reflexes until he can no longer walk. All he can do is reach for the wand mere inches from his fingertips as they shrivel, dry up, turn to bone, and finally to dust. The Thing picks up the wand and tries to use its power to transmute him back into Ben Grimm and Man-Thing back to Ted Salas, but his efforts fail. Either the wand has no more power or Ben can't control it, so he gives the innate but very possibly still deadly weapon to some random kid on the street as the Man-Thing walks away back to his swamp.
And that is the issue. So initial thoughts. Big picture, overall grade. The story is okay. There's some charming parts. There's some fun and funny parts. There's some nice bits with the art. It's not the greatest story. It's not the best story for the thing or the main thing. Man thing is a hard thing to team up with. He's he's hard to put in the team up. And I know we'll, we'll talk about this a little bit more just because he doesn't have the mind of his own. So he's almost more of an instrument of nature or a plot device. He doesn't really have that much of a character. Turning him into Ted Salas for part of it solves that problem for a short period of time. But in terms of who the villain is and how the team up plays along, it's good, not great nothing really special yeah i'd agree with that i I was surprised to see gil kane who i associate more you know with dc than with marvel actually do the art on this he did a lot of covers around this time he he was really prolific at marvel for doing covers at this time and actually that was something that i noted was i read through it before i i knew that steve gerber wrote it i for some reason i glossed over and didn't even think about who the artist was it wasn't until i got to the very end when we see that little kid at the end that we'll come back to this point but when ben hands the i was like that that is a Gil Kane little kid because a couple of years ago, I um, it must have been for just an episode of FW Presents. It was like a Find Your Joy thing. I covered an issue of Action Comics that Gil Kane drew with uh, Bob Fisher was my guest. And it was a very special issue. It was sort of like a what-if type of like the imaginary tale where if Superman never existed and these aliens came to Earth and took over and two little kids named Jerry and Joe used their imagination to create a Superman type of character that comes in and saves the day. Um, very funny, funny little adventure. But like if you read that, if you like know, like if, you, if you've seen Gil Kane draw a child or anything less like but younger than a than a normal average person like they have a, a type of look and it's like oh wow okay that was Gil Kane but the thing was like it took me until that last page to really recognize it and I think it's because the main characters of this story aren't human looking so I didn't see a lot of Gil Kane's usual style I now looking back at it I can see it in the molecule man pages yeah. and like those flashbacks, you can see his style. You can see the, even like panel layout type of thing, but with the thing and the man thing pages, like I could have been anybody. I don't recognize Gil Kane there. The parts where we see the other dimension, for example, the molecule men, the technology around there, the, just the way it's staged, it feels very much DC silver age, you know, yeah. <laughs> the kind of slick, yeah, yeah, yeah. slick kind of look that, that they had. And then when the two monsters are turned into humans, you know, they could be, oh, look, it's... Uh, Hal Jordan. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Ray Palmer. Sorry, yeah, was, Ray Palmer. Yeah. Or so I, I felt it more keenly, I guess. But you're right. Once you're doing the thing, and Joe Sinnott, was I think is the thing, Inker, right. is, you know, inking over it. The thing is just the thing. It just, it, it, it takes the style away from it in a way. Okay, well, let's look at that cover. Let's, let's go, you know, let's go layer by right. layer into the comic, starting with the cover. Uh, what do you think of this one? Uh, I don't like the colors, as much um, for one thing, because uh, the main thing, and by the way, the version I'm looking at, so I don't know if this, how much this has been recolored or what I'm looking at the version in the Epic collection, Marvel two and one 
presents the thing, uh, Epic Collection Volume 1. But yeah, the, the colors, main thing is like this very kind of muted brown. If you didn't see his eyes, you'd think the thing was punching Chewbacca. The, aside from the colors, aside from that thing, I like it because it has these two brutish, monstrous, hulking characters fighting each other. And like it's the same, it's kind of a classic type of pose that you see in these type of things. This could be the thing versus the Hulk or Hulk versus Thor, you know, two titans of Marvel Comics superheroes fighting each other. I like that. Um, you also see a preview of inside the page. Thing's hand is going right through Man-Thing's center mass. And there's just like this explosion of gore, but it might just be like mud and something coming out of the back of it. I mean, that's pretty, that's pretty intense. And I guess like, I mean, it's a number one issue, so. You make it count. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm looking at the actual issue. He is brown. He's brown throughout. Greenish brown, maybe in the interiors, but most, you know, brown. So I wonder when he actually became green, because I've read the first appearance and it was black and white. So it's, you know, you can't tell. Gorgeous Grimoro art. Uh, he wasn't colored in that. So I wonder when he became actually green and if he was browner at the beginning, like more mud, and less grass, uh, which would also set him apart from Swamp Thing. His second appearances in the Kazar strips, the flashbacks are kind of colorless. So it it is really like in those uh, Astonishing Tales with Kazar, he, he wasn't like a deep forest green. It was more of a green-brown blend. Uh, and I'm flipping through my, uh, my Man-Thing trades here. On the covers, he's looking pretty green, but... Yeah, I guess it was when he got when he started his strips in fear, and he became like proper green on all the pages. But. Yeah, so they don't seem to quite know it, or, or it's it's the fall. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's the fall. It's around winter. He's, the seasonal changes. Yeah, maybe I could imagine that. But yeah, the fact that he's brown on this, and even in the interiors, I mean, colors by George Russo's here, the uh, seminal Marvel colorist during this time, and uh, you know, part of uh, Bob Kane's crew on Batman back in the '40s and everything. He also did the Marvel team up that I covered with. Shag a couple months ago, where he did a lot of moody, it's dark, it's night, like playing with colors was interesting. In this case, I feel like it's a little colorless, you know, it's like the whole issue, you've got a greenish swamp, blue, green, gray swamp, and then Molecule Man shows up in powder blue, rather than his normal purple and green, where he might have popped out more. And if Man-Thing was greener, he'd pop out more from these backgrounds. It's, it's a little bit dingy for me. Yeah, I kind of see that. Yeah. One thing I do like about the cover uh, that we had mentioned is that Marvel is doing, at this point, the corner box is really little corner bubbles. And you get, you know, a pose of the thing and a pose of the Man-Thing in circles next to their names. And I really like the Man-Thing one, which looks like a, so it's that Bigfoot pose, Bigfoot going into the woods. <laughs> I like that. Like, he's, his back is turned to us, you know, which is unusual. Well, comic book artists love the butt shot. They love to have, like, a, a figure, you know, with their back turned so you can get the full-on rear end. Whereas the thing is showing us his crotch, you know. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> I'm full frontal. Who's got the biggest man thing? I, we had to do it. So, okay, let's get into the issue itself. It starts with Ben in some sort of 19th century... <laughs> General store <laughs> yeah. in New Mexico. Looking at Time Magazine's thing of the year, I wonder if they have it every year. How many things <laughs> before you cycle back? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> but yeah, this is Ben getting angry at... Uh, what do you think of this attitude that Ben has throughout this first part of the story that motivates this team up? It's a little silly. Um, but on the other hand, I mean, like, if you look like the thing and you can never change back and you're sort of cursed to this... You you really only have one thing going for you. 
for your notoriety. And and if somebody else is going to take that, because of when I started reading Fantastic Four comics, I tend to think of Ben as a little bit more well-adjusted and a little bit more secure with himself than this. But certainly in in some of those early years, he was he was prone to tantrums and stuff like that. Not the sharpest tool in the shed. I don't know. Maybe he thinks Man-Thing called himself that, but obviously that's <laughs> not, you know, the Man-Thing didn't call himself anything. Uh, this is the media that he should be angry with, Time Warner or something. <laughs> but it's not. And then in the similarly, when he leaves the New Mexico by bus, you think, couldn't he have called the Fantastic Car or something in there? But it also it gives us a shot of, you know, a whole sequence of the thing on a bus as, right. as people right. around him crouching fear at this. You know, I wonder if he paid for two seats. I think throughout... Two and one. There's something amusing about the thing being in certain situations. You know, when he's in the safety of his family, of the Fantastic Four, the Baxter building, it all seems to make sense. When he's out in the world without that close-knit group, it's weird. And I think they play with that. And and I think that works. I mean, we were talking about earlier, you kind of mentioned, like, the thing was not the second most popular character at Marvel Comics at this time. Like, why did he warrant the book like that? I mean, you could have gone with the Hulk or something like that if you needed somebody that popular as, as sort of like the face of, of Marvel that wasn't Spider-Man. But I think with the Hulk every team-up is pretty much going to go the same way. Mm -hmm. You're pretty much writing the same story again and again every month. With the thing, you can put him in different situations, and sometimes his physique really contrasts and sets off like like a, the, a strong like visual dichotomy of like his his surroundings and his nature. But he's also – he is intelligent enough – to recognize that, so sometimes that can you can play with irony and and just um, false expectations with that. So yeah, seeing the thing on a bus on a public transport and seeing the guy in front of him just like sweating bullets, like what the heck, man? I can't lean back in my seat. Otherwise, this guy's gonna gonna kill me or something. And probably the other reason is that the other top selling title was Fantastic Four. So you mm -hmm. get a character from them, and as we head into the 70s, and horror comics start to get bigger, monster comics seem to be interesting to, to, to readers. I mean, this first issue has Man-Thing, which is a monster feature, and so the thing is the monster. And, uh, and you're just putting another monster book on the stands, even though he's also a superhero. And this is the part where we learn about the Marvel feature element. I, th to me, this was all... I don't need these recaps... <laughs> You know, just to find out that why Ben is in New Mexico, I could have been done with a thought bubble, probably. This is comics at the time, you know? Again, like with, with the publication, I wonder if this issue was written or scripted as Marvel Feature issue 13. Ah, yes. Yeah, possibly. And then and then they were just like, no, we're changing it. We, we got enough of a response where we think this type of uh, format has enough legs. We're going to give the thing his own his own book like this. So it's part of that mini arc. The, the New Mexico or a yeah, thing yeah. on the road mini right. arc. and the, Yeah, yeah, yeah. That makes sense. That makes complete sense. Then we're in the other dimension. So they, they recap this a little bit, but it is a complicated story in retrospect, the Molecule Man story. After his first bout with the Fantastic Four back in FF number 20, which is a while ago, the Watcher interfered for one of the first times, and sent Molecule Man to this other dimension where within five years he'd be dead, you know, and not be a concern. But Siskoid, I thought the Watcher never interfered. Um, yeah. <laughs> and then, so he's in this dimension, so we see him again. He somehow has a son. I, we see other buildings. Are there other people in this place? 
Unclear. <laughs> and and then he dies, and he gives this other molecule man a, a mission, you know, to continue continue my work, go and get revenge. Okay, but then, as we know in Marvel history, Molecule Man returns and is he's fine. I mean, so what happened? There's a retcon, and I think the retcon actually starts in Ohatmu. So Marvel Universe okay. tries to explain this, and there's okay. there's often some retcons there in the biographies, and what they end up saying there or maybe elsewhere is that. He maybe he created this son out of whole cloth using his, his powers. He implanted his mind into that body. I don't know why it was necessary for this to be his son. If he tells his son the story and then he dies, he's like, and like the son is like, okay, I'm going to get a revenge on your behalf. But by the end of it, the son ends up dying in the same way. Like, it's like, why didn't Gerber like just cut out the middleman and just make this the return of the Molecule Man? What it does allow, I suppose, is for the Molecule Man here to fall down dead, but maybe he's not dead. Mm-hmm. You know, and then the son goes and gets himself right. zapped. Whatever it is, this is an early appearance by the Molecule Man, and later they make other decisions. But again, I have to say, I hate the costume colors. <laughs> I like the purple and green better than this powder blue and green pastel Molecule Man, as I will call him. But yeah, so we're in this other time where we're getting, you know, he gets powers and these powers are going to be non-firestorm, which is to say I can affect organic matter. I can change people's bodies. And uh, that's going to lead us to some interesting plot developments for the two things. And I also like how now that he's gone to Earth and he's in the swamp. He gets very frustrated that he can't teleport to New York. <laughs> he's stuck in this one. He's like slapping that that wand. It's like, uh, you know, when is this gonna this, this is gonna work? But he needs to keep hold of it because, as we see, they use space time differential as the reason. It's like suddenly I get aged up. Uh, space time differential is what Doctor Who will eventually use to explain why bringing back a new, uh, an old doctor he's much older because the actor is. They use time. Oh yes. They use time differential. As the key phrase to explain that. So I thought, oh, uh, I thought Doctor Who sort of invented that concept, but here it is in 1973. Do you know when they started saying, like, when was the first time they said it in Doctor Who? I don't remember seeing it before 2006, 2007. Uh, so, okay. uh, yeah, I mean, we've, we've seen doctors, older doctors, as early as, when was the three doctors? 1973, which would have been that year. But they, Same year as this, But they yeah. don't say it. And the second Doctor doesn't look particularly older at that point because he hasn't been the Doctor for three years. You know, it's not... Right. The show had only been... Doctor Who had only been around for, like, what, nine years at that point? Ten. Less than... Oh, okay. Yeah, it was the 10th anniversary show. Okay. But then later, when we see certain Doctors in the 80s, yes, they look much older, the actors. Not that much older, but they look older. And then still no time differential mentioned. I think that's just a, a phrase used... In Time Crash, when the Fifth Doctor meets the Tenth Doctor. Anyways, this is one of two accidental Doctor Who references in the comic. <laughs> we'll get to the other one at the end. When I noticed it here, I go, oh, okay. Uh, I was going to say, I hope the first Doctor Who reference is my favorite word in this, which I, I missed it, but it's all the way back on page one. It's when the thing is mad. It's in like the, the big panel. Well, you're not getting away with it. With He's basically talking about stealing his name, and he refers to Manthing as Slime Puss. I just... I don't know if it's supposed to be slime puss, like, or slime pus. Probably puss, like, as in like the as, uh, referring to the face, but slime puss. Like, that is a great like nickname slash insult for man thing. I love that word. This is the other thing that 
Ben Grimm has in common with Peter Parker is the slinging of like oh yeah like automatic nicknames. No, it's not. That's not the reference. Although Doctor Who and the Revenge of the Slime Pusses or <laughs> could, could have made an episode. Jenna Coleman never said that to whoever the Doctor was at that point. I don't think so. I gotta say also about the uh, Molecule Man's appearance. What is up with those chapped lips? <laughs> Some grotty looking lips. It's not just the the zigzags in the face. The sort of lightning bolts on the on the forehead, much worse. Okay, let's get the thing into this action. He gets to Florida, fights with Molecule Man. This is one of those things where, I mean, you got the thing with his power is prolific, but it's also limited in scope. He's just really, really strong, and he's just very physical. Going up against somebody with cosmic-level reality-altering powers is the Molecule Man. This should be very one-sided, and to some degree it is, except we see that, you know, even when he's being bound up with all of these things, the thing's real power, Ben's power, is he doesn't quit. He never stops. He keeps going. Like, that relentlessness is one of my favorite things about him. There's a story from the recent Captain... And I say recent, it's probably like three years old now. A Captain America arc by Mark Wade and Chris Samney. And it deals with Cap being sent into the, the future. He thinks it is a far, far distant future, but it's actually not as far as... But basically, the world has been ravaged. It's like a post-apocalyptic thing where like this sort of fascist stormtrooper government has taken over the U.S. All of the superheroes have been wiped out except for the Hulk survived. And they found out that the Thing survived. And essentially... The thing has been in the basement of the villain's like citadel at one of those like wheels, those giant things where he's just pushing, he's like holding onto this like wheel and spinning it, walking in a circle every day, every hour, every second, every like minute. Like he can't stop. He won't even like stop to sleep because he was told that this is the only way to generate power that's keeping the last of human civilization alive. So just because of that, just knowing that, like that the future of humanity is dependent on him, Ben Grimm will just walk and push this wheel by himself forever. And he doesn't stop no matter how tired and exhausted it is because he thinks humanity is dependent on him. And then Cap has to break to him. It's like, They've been lying to you, dude. You've been helping the bad guys. And it, it breaks Ben's heart. And you see the, the fallout from that. But I just – that moment that I think Mark Wade, who as much as any writer in Marvel or DC, Mark Wade understands the essence of characters. I think he knows that Ben's superpower is he doesn't give up on the people who need him. And we'll see that also play out in this, not just with mm -hmm. the vines or whatever, but once Ben Grimm is turned into a human again, that doesn't stop him. Right. Even though he's got Ted Salas there, also made human, and he's got like these gaps in his memory because he, he is mindless as the creature, so he doesn't remember anything that happened when he was a creature, so it's just like very – suddenly he's there, you know. And he's completely human and not a superhero and sort of trying to steer the action towards somewhere else, but Ben, powerless or no, you know, and he's trying to save the Fantastic Four specifically. He's going to go after the FF. And even though they're more equipped to deal with the Molecule Man, he still wants to stop that, you know, human or not. Yep. Citrusville, where the action will now take place, Molecule Man shows his power, changes a guy into the into Reed Richards, or a Reed Richards lookalike, stretches him to the breaking point. I'm not sure what the panel is supposed to be showing there, because when the, when the guy falls 
he's still got his head attached, although that Prius panel looks like something popped off or exploded off. Yeah, uh, I'm looking at it, and it, yeah, it's just sort of some kind of snap, where it's just the breaking of bones, mind something, yeah, just... And it like sort of reverts back to his normal looking top half, but so that that's the moment where Molecule Man's gone too far, killed a person, and uh, and still Ben Grimm's coming. He gets turned back into the thing. Well, like, how, and how does he even? See, like, he's like, I do not like you this way. If you're in your human form, there is a quality of nobility about you that troubles me. I prefer you as the orange-skinned buffoon. So he turns him back into the physically stronger rock monster. It's like, okay, I. Not sure I follow that logic, but okay. I don't think the Molecule Man Sr. was ever a veteran. Ever. Ever, actually. Maybe using the sun as a way to make someone make mistakes, have a little harder time, not do the the easiest thing to stop the monsters, but trying different tricks, trying to show off a little bit. And maybe that's, you know, he's hoisted on his own petard. Although, again, Ted Salas is there, tries to stop the thing from getting himself killed, the thing will not stop. And uh, and then Ted Salas gets turned into a monster. <laughs> you know, back into a monster, of course. We need to reestablish the status quo. And then there's that little fight. There's the cover fight. Because finally, Man-Thing feels some ire towards the thing and attacks him. So we got like a page of a fight where the punch through the body happens. And it's the goop that comes out of the body that is then thrown at the wand or at Molecule Man, lose contact with the wand, and he shrivels into a skeleton and dust. This is the other reference to Doctor Who. In uh, Dalek's Master Plan, which was in the the first Doctor era, the plot ends with there's some sort of time destructor. It's got a name like that. The Daleks are trying to get the components for this time destructor, where which can throw waves of super time or you know makes things age super quickly or whatever it is. And there's a companion who dies in this manner, trying to reach the time destructor. Uh, and we see her turn into a skeleton, into dust, just like this. Mm. Again, accidental. There's no way. I don't think Steve Gerber had a, a, a way to watch Doctor Who in the 70s or mm. those Doctor Whos in any case, which many of them have been lost. Dalek's Master Plan is not complete in the archives. But it did remind mm. me of that moment as well, especially since I had Doctor Who in mind because of the earlier reference. End tangent. (laughs) (laughs) And of course, the kid, the Sam Peckinpah moment where the kid runs onto the battlefield unimpeded and, uh, you know, plays with a weapon. The thing just gives him this magical (laughs) (laughs) weapon here. Oh, is Molecule Man going to return? Is he going to, if he did inhabit his son's body, can he inhabit this kid? Is there a transference of souls happening? I wonder if this is supposed to be a, huh? Yeah. Will he return? But yeah, the kid with the giant head, I guess that's the that's the Gilkanism that you picked up. Yeah. I, I think Ben's babysitting instincts get a little bit better <laughs> throughout the decades. Uh, this, this is not great. I don't, I don't think he would give Franklin necessarily, you know, you know, Dr. Doom's super weapon or something like that. Just like, yeah, I can't get this thing to work, so it's probably harmless. You know, you take it. But we did see how, like you said, Man-Thing is... Kind of an observer character, kind of a force of nature. Can he do team-ups? It's not obvious. And I mean, by turning them into human, for a couple of pages, we do get them working together as partners. They really don't do anything besides walk into a city. At one point, Ted Salas is talking about, it's like, hey, if we can find my own lab, I might be able to recreate, the, to give us our powers. And 
Gerber was like, no, nah, that's too long and too complicated. Skip that. I'll just have them give them their powers back for whatever reasons. So we kind of get both of it. We get them being able to work together for a short period of time, but then we also get the obligatory fight between the, the two heroes, which is crucial for every Marvel team-up. They, they have to actually throw punches at each other because of some misunderstanding. Yeah, and it happens later than sooner, strangely. Yeah, yeah, yeah it happens like the penultimate page. Yeah. <laughs> All right, who fared better among these two things? How well does this fit each of their stories or atmospheres? Is this a thing story, or is this more of a man-thing story? Because there's an FF villain, Ben's trope of being made human and choosing, I guess, choosing or having to choose to, to be the thing. And then Man-Thing spending part of the issue as Ted Salas, not as the creature. Does that all spell the thing? It mostly does. I think this is mostly a thing story. And by mostly, I mean it's like 80% thing story. <laughs> yeah, just because of all those things. It is his book. He, he's playing into a Fantastic Four, you know, former villain and everything. The man thing is there, but kind of just like a witness at one point, and his his effect on the final battle is almost incidental. We don't really, I mean, we get a little bit of his background and like who Ted Salas was, but not much. There's no thing where like the the villain like burns at the man thing's touch or anything. We don't get like the aspect of man thing's powers or anything. He almost ages at the sight of man thing, almost ages to death. But there is a little bit of the ironic twist and the horrible death at the end that you could attribute to like the horror comics of the man thing. That's there, but uh, I don't know. I think this is mostly a thing story about the the swamp monster just happens to kind of wander through and then wander out of. Yeah, I'm afraid that's true. Even though Steve Gerber is the Man-Thing writer, and yeah, should have catered to that more? I don't know. Okay, next rubric, cool moves. What is the thing's coolest move in this? Again, just going back to his his sort of resilience. I mean, at, at one point during when the Molecule Man, or Son of Junior, whoever, when he put gives the thing back his powers, and then he like creates these two giant, cinder blocks as big as the thing with chains around his feet the thing is able to break out of those chains and you know whatever mystical cosmic energy creates these things out of molecules you see the strength the thing's strength that he's able to break out of these binds and he keeps on going after him he keeps charging the villain you know he won't be stopped even by those weights and i think still being in the fight against that cosmic level villain when he's depowered part of his coolness. I think Ben Grimm would be a hero whether he had been irradiated or not. Yep. Uh, as for Man-Thing, his coolest move, I think it's, for me, it's pretty fun that it's his mud stuff that Ben slings and that knocks the wand out of Molecule Man's hand, causing his death. Ironic, like his stories. So I think, uh, even though he's, it seems indirect, but his coolest move is still being the agent of Molecule Man's destruction. Yeah, yeah, and the very, it's cool it's kind of interesting visually but it's still a passive influence on the final outcome of the story which again i think reinforces that it's ben's yeah. book slim pickings for this category okay dumb or weird moves the things i mean just like the fact that he kind of loses control and like when he's still charging and when when Ted, in his human form, with his human vulnerabilities, tries to get in his way and tries to stop him, the fact that Thing very violently bats him out of the way and knocks him into like the rocks of like the ruined street and everything, it's like that could have had some collateral damage you didn't count on. He could have broken some bones or been even more seriously injured. And I think 
Ben ought to be more careful with his strength than that. Mm. What's the opposite of slim pickings? Thick pickings? Because <laughs> Ben is pretty dense throughout, I think. So I, I guess my <laughs> yeah. choice is his leaving magic tech in the hands of the kid. And that's not dangerous at all. But you could, I mean, copyright infringement and blaming the Swamp Monster rather than Time Magazine or just getting angry at that silliness or bullying the store owner or the bus driver or is he, there's so much weirdness in his attitude towards all this you know you almost feel like yeah he needs reed richards there to keep him in check <laughs> because when he's alone he's all over the map man things dumbest or weirdest move it's not necessarily dumb or weird but like when they're both in human form and they're walking out of the swamp ted has this plan he's like if we can find my own lab i might be able to come come up with some sort of like chemical agent or some type of scientific way to stop this guy and then they just don't do that <laughs> they just walk into the city it's like um what happened to the plan? Or <laughs> like, I don't know what, what's going on there. So it's just sort of like he proposes this idea that might have been interesting, but we just don't see that fulfilled. Yeah. As usual, the weird move is often the writer's weird move. For me, Ted, getting in Ben's way during the fight, you called it the thing's bad move or whatever. But it, it's also Ted's. Like, what are you even doing there? You're not a superhero. Just get out of there. You have no business tangling with a supervillain. The thing doesn't need you there. You know, just like walk off. And if he'd done that, I don't know if uh, the Molecule Man's powers sort of, uh, you know, when he's dead, everything magically returns to normal. Maybe. But, you know, if Ted had just like walked off, he would never have been turned back into a monster. We would have been the poorer for it as as readers. But <laughs> but uh, yeah, so that to me, that's the dumb move. Then there's the friendly farewell. A team-up tradition. But with Ben Grimm, it's the unfriendly farewell. It usually is. So how does this one rate? Because at the end, both characters turn their backs and leave severally. They're in the same pose. Just, so yeah. this is about <laughs> as unfriendly as it gets. They're both Bigfoot at the end. Yeah, like I, I almost hear like the lonely man theme playing for both of them. <laughs> as they just kind of wander away from each other. And with main thing, like what else can you do? He just shambles off back to the swamp and you kind of wonder like, should Ben have pursued him? Like, did he have any kind of obligation? Like, to should he have called Reed and said, "Hey, there's this muck monster." Like, should this be on our radar? Is there a way that you could cure this guy? Like, I, I don't know. But they just they just wander off. He does show some empathy. There goes the right. someone unluckier than I am. You know, so there's a bit of self pity, yeah. the usual Ben Grimm self pity. But he can find it in his heart to to have more pity for Ted Salas. But because he met the real man, you know, there's something to that, I suppose. All right, we'll take a break for a couple of promos. Then we'll be back with our special features. Afternoon, everybody. Ryan! How's that baby treating you, Mr. Daly? Like Thanos, snapping his fingers at my bank account. In that case, how about a beer on the house? Sure, gotta give my mouth something to do between podcasts. Say, Ryan, I don't get how you have so much time for podcasting. Doesn't your wife want you spending time with the baby? Would you? <laughs> Truth is, I think she's a little worried about how much time I'm spending with the kid, ever since his first words were Dagobah system. <laughs> now she wants me to go out and do something mature, something productive, and most of all, something lucrative that can support the family. So you're going to... Podcast about cheers, yeah. That kid's not going to start college for 18 years. I got time. 
Cheerscast, the podcast where everybody knows your name. Coming soon to the Fire and Water Network. Coming soon from giant-sized Amalgam Comics. When a rift in space appears in Central Swamp, police scientist Barry Salas investigates and is sucked into the Speed Force. Barry goes in, but Speed Thing comes out, a being of pure velocity, drawn to crime like electricity to a lightning rod, and every robe will burn at his touch. Watch for the red and white magazine size first issue in stores never wear. We're back, uh, and one of our monthly features is, of course, the bonus team-up, in which each of us proposes, in this case, a perfect Man-Thing team-up. And we just said how hard this is, so <laughs> how do we, how do you approach it? <laughs> so I, I just kind of thought, like, what what else would he, who could he team up with, or, like, where else could you take this character that would be something nutty? And I just thought, okay, the story Man-Thing enters the sort of nexus of all realities, and through some kind of portal or gateway, he emerges in the DC universe, whereupon he is immediately bestowed a yellow ring that flies to him. And from the ring, he hears the voice, Ted Salas of Earth, you have the ability to instill great fear. Welcome to the Sinestro Corps. And some lucky artist gets to redraw main thing in a Sinestro Corps uniform or some version like that. And I didn't get a chance to write it out. I wanted to have some sort of the Sinestro Corps oath is in blackest day, in brightest night, beware your fears made into light. Let those who try to stop what's right burn like his power, Sinestro's might. I wanted to rewrite that to do some kind of uh, like combining the the burning power with like burning at the touch of the man thing. And I, I just couldn't think of it. Something I think. I think the Red Rings of Rage also have burning in their oath or something like that. But I. I I've forgotten. It's been too long since I've read those issues. But yeah, I just thought that would be kind of funny. Like if main thing ported over to DC, oh yeah, he would be in the Sinestro Corps. Built for it. Yeah. I went w- weird. Uh, man thing and the magic of Xanth. So this okay. is Piers Anthony's youth centric fantasy series, which also used Florida as a dimensional nexus. And one could imagine a story where Man-Thing crosses over to Xanth, pals around with an ogre or two, and deals with a variety of magical powers, creatures based on puns, etc. That's, that's kind of what the magic of Xanth... I haven't read those books since I was a uh, young teenager, but <laughs> Xanth was the shape of Florida, and you got through it through the Everglades sort of thing. So um, I imagine that the nexus of all realities has a pathway. <laughs> and, it, and it would be a lot like some of the Man-Thing stories, you know, where there's a... There's wizards and and all sorts of things that that seem to come from a, a fantasy realm. Uh, there, there's a link, although Xanth would be more lighthearted and silly than than your normal man thing story. I wanna rock! So each segment has its own flavor, and in this case, there's something I, I call I wanna rock, and it's riffing on Benji's skin and Ryan's deep interest in music. Woo! To bring you a musical selection each episode to go with the comic and its guest star. Ryan, what are we listening to while we feel the touch of the man thing? Oh, so so touching. This song is Bottom of the River by Delta Ray. Oh my head, oh baby, it's a long way down to the bottom of the river. Oh my head, oh baby, it's a long way down, a long way down. For a man thing story, I just I, it had to be 
I, I mean, I could have gone something like Born on the Bayou or something kind of obvious, something like that. But I, I wanted something that went right to the realm of kind of Southern Gothic and blues rock. And the song evokes a lot of like spiritual qualities that, in my mind, put me right in the heart of the Deep South, right in the swamp and the bogs with Ted. But also responded to the uh, the line in the song, Hold My Hand, which evokes a kind of sense of teamwork, camaraderie, helping each other. Um, and that, you know, for the nature of this, this comic book feature, feels a little bit appropriate. Yeah, hold my hand indeed. At the risk of burning. <laughs> and from the lyrics, I gather is it's about witch trials. Uh, so there's definitely a horror vibe to this song. I think that a good selection uh, and nice musical discovery because I, I'd never heard it before. I also found there's actually a song about Man-Thing by a band called The Mountain Goats. <laughs> it's called Son of Ted Salas. Two on the nose. I mean, we're not going to. That, that's not what this is about. <laughs> so, uh, all right. Well, thanks for teaming up with me, Ryan. Tell the people what else you're working on at the moment. Like, what we, can we expect in the, in the next month? I've got more episodes of Cheerscast coming out. Cheerscast is my uh, weekly series devoted to covering my favorite TV show of all time, Cheers. You can find that on the Fire and Water Podcast Network. You can also find old shows that I've done. Secret Origins, Give Me Those Star Wars. Uh, what else have I done? Midnight. Yeah, it's mid- Yo, yeah the one that's actually topical to the theme of man thing uh it's midnight the podcasting hour wherein i covered the whole original uh issues of swamp thing by len ween and bernie wrightson uh talked a little bit about man thing in one of those very early issues and the whole origin story of when the two of them were published right around the same time but uh yeah if you like that type of horror flavor check out it's midnight the podcasting hour but yeah the only show that i'm working on regularly is cheers cast and then this one and i guess i will be back in december there might be something both seasonally appropriate and monstrous around that time and that's as big a hint as people are going to get as to the next thing we're (laughs) going to cover if if you look at the early issues you should be able to spot which one we meet right uh reminder that uh, we do have a patreon so if you like this content and want more like it please think about making a monthly or a one-time donation the amount of which will allow you to unlock rewards Check it out at patreon.com slash fwpodcast. This month, we are proud to team up with our sponsor, Alan W. Wright, the bold outlaw. And we do enjoy reading your thoughts. And the best place for that is fireandwaterpodcast.com. You can also visit the Fire and Water Podcast Network Facebook page or find us on Twitter at fwpodcast. We'll read your comments on this issue when Ryan is back with us. But next month, I'll be here with my old Invasion and Zero Hour partner, Bass, as we begin our coverage of DC Comics Presents with number one and number two. So on that, see you next time for another amazing superhero team-up, because after all, justice is a clobbering effort. Here's a bit grayer. That's because of me, though. Two of us together are shorted out the time differential.